Take out your Bibles if you haven't done so already and turn to the book of Acts. We are just getting started in our series preaching through the book of Acts, and we made it through verse 7 last week. And we were left with these thoughts. If you remember, we learned from the very first seven verses that Christ is still at work. Uh, The first book, the first volume that Luke wrote was his gospel, and he says in Acts uh, that Christ began to do some things, and he's going to continue now in the book of Acts. So he's still at work. He's still at work in the world, in the church, and in the lives of his people, and you should see evidence of that yourself. Christ is also alive. There's uh, irrefutable proof of it, Luke says, and you can know him, you can grow in him every single day, and you should be growing closer to him every single day. We also learned in the first seven verses that God never intended for his people to step out in their own power. That He gives us his Holy Spirit. There is a young man by the note stand. If you don't have the notes and you'd like some, now is your big chance. Anybody need the notes? There we go. Mrs. Fessenden needs one. So I just voluntold you. <laughs> Anybody? And over here, uh, Gabriel's uh, family needs some over there too. So two more over here, and I really appreciate your help. So God never intended us to step out into the world in our own strength. And I, uh, we were challenged from Acts 1 to spend some time in our Jerusalem seeking the power and strength of God through His Spirit. And then also that The world, as dark as it is, still needs Jesus Christ, still needs Christ, and we shouldn't give up on the world just yet. Since we're still here, there's still work to be done, and we're going to look at what we're called to do uh, in Acts chapter 1 this morning. So we're going to read the chapter together because we are going to finish the whole chapter today. And we're going to start in verse 1, read through the whole chapter, and then pick up in verse 8. So, verse 1, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And, being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, Two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. 
And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotus, and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120, men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in the proper tongue Akeldama, which is to say, the field of blood. For it was written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another man take. Wherefore, of these men which have accompanied uh, with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, until that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So here in Acts uh, chapter 1, we're going to divide the remainder of the chapter into two parts into two parts, and the first part is our commission. Our commission given to us by Jesus Christ here in the book of Acts. It says in verse 8, But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. One author wrote that Acts is a book about mission. And it's not unfair to take Acts 1, verse 8 as the summary of the contents of the book of Acts. Ye shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The purpose of the church was to bear witness of Jesus Christ. Notice with our commission here the might of our mission. The might of our mission. Jesus tells them, we hit on this a little bit last time, to wait for the power that they will receive, not the power that they will produce, right? Jesus says, you shall receive power, not don't uh, get together and stir up some power or produce some power, but whether, rather you will receive power. The might of our mission in fulfilling the commission of Christ to reach the world with the gospel is not found in our own talents, 
or in our own abilities. It is only in the Holy Spirit of God. This is not only a New Testament concept. All the way back in the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Then answered he and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by, my, by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. The might of our mission is in the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus explained to his disciples many times that it would be better for him to go and leave them than for him to stay, because with his going would come the Holy Spirit. In John 16, verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Jesus said, it's going to be better for you that I leave so that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of the Holy Spirit of God. Folks, it is not up to us to convince people or to compel people to trust in Christ. We have been given the Word of God. We are empowered by the Spirit of God. It is not our job to make it happen. We have been given the almighty, infinite power of the Holy Spirit of God within us. Romans chapter 10 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's verse 13. But it goes on to say, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except it be sent, as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our job is to tell. And that's it. And the rest of it is by the spirit of God. There was a, a doctor giving a, a lecture in a medical college in India from Matthew 5.16, which says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And on the lectern was an oil lamp which provided the illumination, and it had a cotton wick which burned from a shallow dish of oil. And as he preached and taught, the lamp ran out of oil and the wick began to smoke and he coughed. And immediately he seized the opportunity for an illustration. He said, some of us here are like this wick. We're trying to shine for the glory of God, but we stink. He says, that's what happens when we use ourselves as the fuel of our witness rather than the Holy Spirit of God. Wicks can last indefinitely burning brightly and without irritating smoke if the fuel, the Holy Spirit, is in constant supply. How often do we think, maybe not by our words, we would never say it, but by our actions and our attitudes that everything depends upon us. Uh, you know, I'm never going to be a good witness for Jesus Christ until I learn this 12-step program by heart. 
I, I need to have all the right tools. I need to know all the arguments. Uh, I need to be fully schooled in the gospel before I can ever open my mouth. Folks, no matter how trained you are, it is not up to you. It is up to the Holy Spirit of God to work in hearts and to use you as his mouthpiece. Jesus said, ye shall receive power. And he was talking to the 12 apostles. He was talking to the men that had been in the seminary of the Savior for three years. And he said, do not leave Jerusalem until you have the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So little depends on us. The only thing that we're called is to be obedient to share the gospel. And God will do the rest. That's the might of our mission. That's the might of our mission. And so encouraging it is that it's not up to me to save people or to convince people. It's up to me to share the gospel. And that's the message of our mission. The message of our mission. Verse 8, he says, Ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. We are to bear witness of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. This is what we are called to do. We are to testify of Christ. We are to bear witness of Christ, which makes perfect sense because this is the role of the Holy Spirit. He testifies of Christ. John 15, Jesus taught in verse 26, when the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, has come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye shall also bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. The Spirit testifies of Jesus Christ. He's in the business of showing people Christ and preaching Christ. And that's our job also. We are to bear witness of the risen Savior. Think about what Paul said to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. I gave you the very same message that I myself received from Christ. How that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. We are to testify of Christ, the risen Savior, who, though he himself is without sin, innocent and pure and holy, Jesus Christ became our substitute and bore our sins in his body on the cross. 1 Peter chapter 2 says in verse 21, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who, Jesus, did no sin, Neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes or wounds ye were healed. Jesus Christ pure and innocent and holy, took our sin on himself on the cross and died in our place, became our substitute, and shed his precious blood for the sin of all mankind. If you back up a little bit in 1 Peter, you'll find in verse 
18 that it says in chapter 1, that ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. You didn't buy your salvation. You didn't receive salvation by some oral tradition that was passed down through the generations. But, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. You are bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. And we as believers are called to proclaim the untarnished, unfaded truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for sinners, that he rose again, and that apart from faith in Christ, there is no escape from a real punishment in a real place called hell. We must declare the unfaded truth of the gospel. Some years ago, there was a terrible train wreck uh, that happened in an eastern state. There was a train loaded with young people returning from school, and it was stalled on a track because of an issue with which which with what is known as the hot box. They had to stop the train because of that issue. And the limited was soon due. And a flagman was sent back to warn the engineer in order to prevent a rear-end collision. Everyone thought all was well. The passengers on the train laughed and chatted while the train hands worked uh, to, to fix the train. Everyone thought they were secure and safe. And suddenly they heard the whistle of the limited coming down the tracks. And the heavy train collided with the local with disastrous results. The engineer of the Limited saved his own life by jumping clear at the last moment. And some days afterward, was called into court to give account for his part in the wreck. It was there that a curious discrepancy in testimonies occurred. The engineer was asked, didn't you see the flagman warning you to stop? He said, I saw him, but he was waving a yellow flag. And I took it for granted that everything was okay. And I went on, though slowing down. Then the flagman was called to testify. What color flag did you wave? They asked. I waved a red flag, but he went by me like a shot. Are you sure it was red? Absolutely. Both men insisted that their testimonies were true. And even it was demonstrated that neither man was colorblind. Finally, the man, the flagman, was asked to produce the very flag that he waved as evidence. And after some time, he was able to do so, and then all was explained. The flag had been red, but it had been exposed to the weather so long that the red was faded and bleached and now looked grungy and yellow. This whole world is headed for a disaster if we don't wave a clear, unfaded flag of warning the truth of the gospel. How clear is your gospel message? Do you realize that each and every single one of us are surrounded with a sphere of people that only you can reach? I could walk into your workplace and I could talk to your coworkers, but they would never take from me what they might take from you. 
because they see you every day. We are surrounded by people every single day. We are called to be salt and light. And how clear is the gospel message that you are proclaiming to the world that is around you? We have a mission. And the message of our mission must be clear. Think about also the magnitude of our mission. Jesus says in Acts 1 verse 8, And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. In Mark 16, verse 15, we have it also. He says, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's an awful big job that we're called to do. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5 says, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servant for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We have been given this treasure that we are entrusted with to preach to all the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark 13.10 says the gospel must first be published among all nations, and then the end will come. Someone wrote, that the commission's outreach is worldwide. And the book of Acts is the record of witnessing in Jerusalem in chapters 1 through 7, in Judea and in Samaria in chapters 8 through 12, and unto the uttermost part of the earth in chapters 13 through 28. Do we understand the magnitude of our own mission? And are we playing an active role in reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? George Stott was a one-legged school teacher in Scotland, and he volunteered to be a missionary in China. Someone came along and said, why in the world would you with one leg go to China? He said, because I don't see those with two legs going, so I must. And he served for more than 20 years there as a missionary in China. Do you understand the magnitude of the mission that's been entrusted to us? And are you playing an active role in fulfilling that great commission to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Think about also not only the magnitude and the message and the might, but the margin of this mission. Verse 9, when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Two angels stood by and said, Jesus is coming back the same way that he left. Why are you standing around looking while you should be working? Why are you gazing up into the sky? Stop daydreaming and get to work. Matthew 24, verse 12 through 14. Jesus said, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom 
shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. The world must know the truth, and we are entrusted with preaching it. There is work to be done. Don't stand gazing up into heaven. There's work to be done. Second Peter verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 say, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Last I checked, He's not returned yet, which means someone will get saved if we would share the gospel. The God that we know and serve and love is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. It is not God's will that one single soul go to hell, but that all come to repentance. And if he hasn't come back yet, there is still another soul that he's waiting to save. Second Peter goes on to say in verses 14 through 15, says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. The long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, and we need to be found blameless and diligent, busy when he comes back. Who is it that you have yet to reach with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? There is such a small margin of time with which we can do so. The disciples were told, he's coming back. It's time to get busy. And how much closer is the coming of Christ today? There's so little time left to reach someone. What about the people that you're around every single day? Say, oh, you know, they know I go to church. You know, you know, pastor, I, you know, they know I'm a Christian. They know I go to church. They should. No, no, no. Have you told them that Jesus died for their sins? That he loves them, that he died for them, that he rose again and offers forgiveness and eternal life to them. Have you told them that? Who is it that you have to reach with the message of the gospel? There is so little time left to do so. Are you fulfilling your commission? And then notice, secondly, the consecration that we find in the remainder of the book of uh, the first chapter of Acts. It says in verse 12, They returned unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon and Judas, the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of the names together were about 120. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, 
which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. We find in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are awaiting the Spirit as Jesus commands, uh, commanded them to do. They go back to Jerusalem and we find them, first of all, awaiting the Spirit. And there's a few things I want you to notice about the manner in which they were awaiting the Spirit. The first is we find them dwelling together in unity. They were dwelling in unity. The disciples of Jesus were unifying. They were in one accord, the Bible says. That doesn't mean the same vehicle. They were in harmony with each other. That joke's not going to last much longer. I think I dated myself. They're in harmony with each other. They were unified. In order, did you know this? This is a Bible teaching all throughout the New Testament that if you want to be used by the Spirit of God, you must love the brethren and be in harmony with the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32. This is exactly what it teaches. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying or building up, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. What is the context there by which we grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Your mouth. What else? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You cannot be filled with the Spirit if you aren't dwelling in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is not possible. Philippians 1 verse 27 says, Only let your conversation, your conduct, your behavior, your lifestyle be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The church, Paul says, ought to be known for its unity and harmony with, uh, in reaching the world with the gospel of Christ. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, implore you, that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We find the church coming together in unity as they were awaiting the Holy Spirit of God. They had a new purpose. They were given a mission to fulfill. And as Christians in this modern age, we also must maintain our perspective and dwell in unity for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were dwelling in unity. They were daily in prayer, it says. They were daily in prayer. The church, in waiting for the promise of the Spirit, continued, the Bible says, daily in prayer. You're going to find, as we go through the book of Acts, that the church in the book of Acts placed such a huge emphasis on prayer. Why is it we, as modern Christians, often treat prayer as a last resort when the early Christians clearly regarded it as the first resort? 
they continued daily together in prayer. Anything you read by E.M. Bounds on prayer will challenge you and help you. One of my favorite quotes is this, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The great preacher D.L. Moody said, I'd rather be able to pray than be a great preacher. Jesus Christ never taught his disciples how to preach, but only how to pray. Curtis Hudson said, there is more that you can do after you pray, but there is nothing you can do until you pray. And Hudson Taylor, that great missionary said, the prayer power has never been tried to its full capacity. If we want to see mighty wonders of divine power and grace wrought in the place of weakness, failure, and disappointment, let us answer God's standing challenge Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. The prayer power has never been tried to its full capacity. And he that is a stranger to prayer, someone once said, is a stranger to power. So clear it is all throughout Scripture that prayer is powerful and important and vital if we want to have a witness, a gospel witness that is effective, if we want to have victory in our life. What do your prayer habits look like? Oh, pastor, you know, I'm just in the habit of prayer. Are you, are you really? I pray three times a day before every meal, the same prayer every day. We make fun of the Catholics and others for their liturgy, and we do exactly the same thing. We pray our memorized prayers over and over and over again. What does your prayer life look like? The prayer power has never been tried to its full capacity. Jesus taught that men ought always to pray and never to faint. How often we wring our hands and we get anxious and we get worried and we just feel like everything is just falling apart and there's nothing we can do and we still haven't prayed. Someone once was talking about an issue that was church was having and they said, you know what, let's pray about that. And one of the older ladies said, has it come to that? But that's the attitude of our life. That's what your habits often declare. Has it really come to that? Are you finally desperate enough to pray? Jesus Christ himself made a habit, if you study the scriptures, made a habit of going off alone to spend hours in prayer. And if he needed it, I definitely do. It's not hard to pray, but it's hard to get in the habit of it. I challenge you this week to find a way to add prayer in. One of the things that I've had to get used to around here is the drive. You know, when I first got introduced to Texas many years ago, I learned that everything is far away. <laughs> you hit the Texas border on our way in from, you know, Michigan, and you still have, what, six hours to go? Everything's far away. 
if you have a commute, maybe you should spend half an hour of that commute with no podcasts, no talk radio, no music, and just pray. Watch and pray, but pray. Listen to Scripture. Find a way to add prayer in. He that is a stranger to prayer is a stranger to power, and if the early church needed it, we sure do also. They were awaiting the Spirit. They were in unity and in prayer. And then we find this uh, curious account here of them appointing a successor to Judas. Peter felt led, based on Scripture, to seek a replacement apostle for Judas, who gave up his apostleship when he betrayed Christ and hung himself. And he laid out two requirements of the successor for Judas. The first requirement was that he must be one of the group, Peter says. In order to be an apostle, according to Peter's own words, this man must have witnessed the risen Savior, must have been with Jesus and have been taught by Christ. Peter puts the date on it as the baptism of John. So from the very beginning, must have been taught by Christ and must have been present during his ministry. And the whole group together concurred that there were two men that fit those requirements, and they appointed or put forward, they proposed those two men as candidates. The biblical definition of an apostle, when you consider Paul, when you consider Barnabas, when you consider the other 12 that we have in the New Testament, an apostle must have seen the risen Savior and must also have been expressly sent by him. So there can be no apostles today. That office is gone. And though Peter and the others sought to replace Judas after his death, no apostles have been replaced since. There's no uh, biblical support for apostolic succession, this idea that there's apostles that get replaced and over and over and over again. The office of apostle is gone, according to the Scripture. But one thing that you will notice as we go through the book of Acts together, just watch for it. You will discover in the book of Acts, God always chooses men that are already actively serving in the church. Every single time. Because men who are called to the ministry don't need to be told to start working. They are already present, and they are already serving when God moves the church to send them. And every single time God separates someone out, for the ministry, you'll find they were already busy serving the church. Sometimes we get this idea, and I won't spend long in this rabbit trail, but we get this idea that if we'll give somebody a job, then they'll be faithful. Or, you know, if I was just given an opportunity, then I would serve. Someone who is called by the Lord to work in the ministry, to serve the church, doesn't have to be told when to start. They serve wherever God has placed them in the moment at that time. They use the gifts that God has given them. They serve where God has placed them. No one in the book of Acts is ever given a job that's not already serving in the church. And then notice also, not only should he be one of the group, he also must be ordained by God. This man was not chosen by a majority vote. He wasn't nominated by the congregation and then confirmed by the other apostles. 
He was chosen by God himself. They laid forth the requirements uh, that was necessary for the office, but they let God do the choosing. It's a little bit interesting the way they did it. Acts is a book of transitions as the church uh, transitions into its, its role in the world. Because they did not yet have the fullness of the Holy Spirit, they, the Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem, fell back on the Old Testament method of casting lots, which was a perfect, uh, perfectly acceptable thing to do and biblical, but after the coming of the Spirit was unnecessary. Why? Because the Bible teaches us, the Spirit teaches us, guides us, leads us into all truth. Romans 8.14 says, As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. James 1.5 gives us this promise that you should be claiming on a daily basis. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. One author said that in the period before Pentecost, the church had to seek other means of divine guidance than the aid of the Spirit. But the method which it adopted, which was prayer and the casting of lots, was entirely proper. In fact, the church was asking the Lord to make his choice of the right man, who was then enrolled as an apostle. The church cannot be said to have elected him. There's biblical basis for casting lots in the book of Proverbs that God oversees all of that, and it was just biblical practice for them to do that, but unnecessary in our day. Why? We have the Word of God, which is complete, we have the Spirit of God, which guides us to all truth. But how can you apply this portion of the Scriptures? Very simply, do you seek God's input on your decisions? There were 120 very godly people in that group, and they did not presume to choose the man for themselves. They asked God to make his choice clear. Do you seek God's input on your decisions? My predecessor in my previous church who retired and moved to Tennessee, and then I uh, took the church from him, uh, he would often point out that people would get a job and accept a career and things like that without ever looking to see if there was a good Bible-preaching church where they were going. They were more worried about uh, is the salary going to be good? Can I find a house to live in? And very seldom did they look to see, where am I going to go to church? Do you seek God's input on your decisions? Do you walk in His wisdom? Thy word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. We have the Bible to guide us every step of the way. Do you spend time in the Bible asking for God to teach you for the day that you have ahead of you? We have prayer where we can pour out our hearts before the Lord and we can ask Him for wisdom. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is given to us to guide us and to teach us and to lead us. Do you seek God's opinion on your decisions? You should. Lord, I, I don't know what to do in this situation. I need your spirit to teach me, to show me. I, I need your word to teach me and to show me what I should do. And you will be amazed how your daily Bible reading speaks to the situation you're in. Do you seek God's opinion on your everyday decisions? 
In closing, in this chapter of Acts, there's several things that we've applied, but basically it's this. We are, every single one of us, called to reach the world. There is the office, the, the role of evangelists. There are those that are gifted, but every single one of us are called to share the gospel. And as one preacher once said, the only alternative to soul winning is disobedience. We are called to reach the world, but we are called to do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are called to do so with the clear message of a risen Savior. And it's a monumental task, and we only have a small margin of time left. Are you obeying your commission? Are you actively, verbally sharing the gospel with the world around you? Faith comes by hearing, not seeing, hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We can also learn from the disciples in that they were unified, they prayed, they sought God's will for their church, and they looked to Him for wisdom and guidance. Are you fulfilling your commission? And is your life also consecrated to the Lord as that early church was? Let's bow our heads now for our time of invitation. I would encourage you, I expect, the Lord spoke to your heart in some way since we asked Him to. She would take some time and do business with Him. She would speak to Him about these things, that you would yield to Him in these things. And also, if you don't know for sure that Jesus Christ is your Savior, that your sins are forgiven, we have those here in the church today that would be thrilled to take a Bible and show you how you can know for sure. Do you know that the Bible says that these things are written that ye may know that you have eternal life? So many people say, well, you know, I hope I'm saved. I think I'm saved. Bible says the Bible's there so you can know you're saved. Do you know today? We would love to show you from the Bible how you can know. It would be our thrill to do that. However, the Lord is working in your heart as we have our song of invitation, you come and do business with him.